0: Hello. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military, who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your episode of Blue Grid Podcast with Seth Kelsey. Major Seth Kelsey is one of the most accomplished men's APAE fencers in U.S. fencing history and was the anchor of the U.S. men's épée team for more than a decade, leading the team to its first Senior World Championship medal with their silver in 2010 and the first Senior World title for U.S. men's team in 2012. Welcome to the LAPA studio. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having me here.
1: I will actually hand over to you to introduce yourself further. You have a list of accolades and accomplishments as an elite athlete in the fencing world. So I want to jump right away into your fencing career. Tell me how you started with that career and how you ended up being where you are.
2: I'd gone to a new school and I had two friends and they both fenced. So I was like, well, this seems to be like the thing to do. And then I got really fortunate. And that towards the end of the first year, one of the best coaches in the world had moved to our club and started to work with me. And very quickly, within the first two years, I won under 13 championships. You know, it doesn't mean anything to anyone else. But for me, that day winning that first medal, I was like, oh, this is something worth doing.
1: And you were 10 or 11 at the time? I was 11. That means something for an 11 year old. So, that reinforced your continued performance and training?
2: Yeah. You know, I think it's difficult to find things that you're great at in life. You know, I think maybe this is it. <laughs> so, I stayed with it. And then I started making cadet world teams. Then I made junior world teams. And then when I was 17, I made the senior world team. So, that's everyone in the US qualified to go to La Chaux de Fond in Switzerland. So, you know, things were moving in the right direction. And then I started to look at colleges. Fencing has a number of scholarships to a lot of different schools. So I applied to Penn State. They have a great fencing program. But the Air Force Academy had also just hired a great coach. And my coach at the time was like, hey, you should check this out. And after a visit, kind of thinking about it, I was like, this is kind of an opportunity of a lifetime. I should take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. I was able to go to the Air Force Academy, go to school, and fence. And uh, I learned things at the Air Force Academy that I did not anticipate learning about fencing. But that I think really helped me later on down the road. Like what? One is time management because the schedule is so rigid academic-wise. So, you know, you're up at six, classes are done by 2.30-ish, and then you get time to practice from three to six, do your homework, go to sleep, rinse and repeat. I'd had busy schedules before, but there there was no flexibility. Or if you have a little bit of flexibility, it's on Sunday. So. That helped me later on, just trying to balance all the different sort of pressures and needs to get everything done. And I'm glad I went through it now. I don't think I was happy at the time.
1: So, you felt like that very rigid structure helped you form the habits that you have currently that help you at work or as an athlete?
2: Yeah, kind of impressed upon me that you may only have an hour and you need to get as much out of this hour as possible. You know, I have an hour to do homework, whether it's math or physics or this reading. Let's try to get through as much as possible and retain as much as possible. For is you only get a limited amount of time to practice each week. They can't go over that limit, otherwise they risk their program. I only have so many hours, like, how do I get the most out of this?
1: Mm -hmm. And it's very impressive that only a year after qualifying for your first Senior World Championship 2002, you won the NCAA Championships, becoming the first Air Force Academy fencer to do so. And by 2004, you qualified for the first of your three Olympic teams. And this was all before you were 22.
2: Yeah. Winning the NCAAs was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I would say it's on the same level of qualifying for the Olympics. Because you have to fence a round robin. So you have to fence 31 bouts. And then only the top four get to compete to be the champion. So my first year, I was 12th. And then the next year, I was 6th. And then the next year, I was 3rd. And so my last year, it was actually at home. We were hosting the championships. You know, I wonder if it's going to break. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'll be second or first. And I was able to win on home turf, which was an amazing feeling. But it was a long process for me to figure out not only how that tournament works, because it's different than any other fencing tournament, and just trying to keep it together over this really long period of time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: When you went to the academy, did you think of what you wanted to do? Did you think that you would be fencing for the rest of your life? Or did you, you know, <laughs> have other plans?
2: <laughs> I don't think I knew, to be honest. I just knew that it was an amazing opportunity to go, and I couldn't pass it up. And then when I was there, fencing was something I got a lot of joy out of. The first year is difficult. I would say every year is difficult at the Air Force Academy, but the first year in particular. And so for me, fencing was really like a respite, like a place I could kind of forget about the pressures of military service. And it was an area I was very good at. So I learned to really love fencing And the time I got away, the time I got to be in practice. I don't know if I had that appreciation before.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: I often think when you are working really hard on your craft, sometimes that can be frustrating, right? Because you can't get to where you want to be, because you don't reach your goals exactly the way you want them to, or because there is pressure to compete, or for other reasons. So I find it interesting to hear you say you just loved it and it was a respite for you from other academics or from life in general.
2: Yeah, I think for me... I don't know how this happened, but practice for me was very process-oriented. I mean, for sure, there were times I was very frustrated. But in my heart, I believed if I did my best, i get my tip on the right place, good positioning, I was moving enough, making smart decisions that things were going to work out. And so I always felt like practice was just trying to make sure I could maintain all of that as the pressure ramped up. I didn't have to be number one. I only able to fence, my best. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't fence my best, I'd be frustrated about that. Maybe I didn't prepare enough or I I wasn't focused. For me, it was always like looking back in. Oh, yeah, there were things I should have done Mm -hmm. to go better.
1: So I'm curious and because I'm very detail-oriented and I want to know about this. So Monday through Sunday, what does your schedule look like? Like how many hours of fencing? Sounds like just a few hours each day. But outside of fencing, what else goes into training for fencing? Like do you have things like meditation or yoga or running? I don't know.
2: My training really... Evolved over time and changed. After I graduated, at the time there's only like the US Modern Pentathlon team, which is, uh, fencing is one of their disciplines. I was able to fence with them a couple times a week. I was doing a little bit of lifting, nothing really structured. But for me, I was able to get out what I needed. That was fine. But over time, I really felt that oh, I need a more structured program. And I was fortunate to work with some great strength and conditioning coaches. So by the end, it looks like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, full bouting, warm up, maybe some footwork, and we're fencing for two hours. And then three days a week, strength and conditioning, normal stuff like squats and deadlifts. But now looking back, I sort of see the genius of our strength coach. She's also doing a lot of stuff to prevent injuries. I didn't appreciate it at the time, mm-hmm. but now that I've gotten a little bit older <laughs> and my body has taken some mileage, that makes a lot more sense to me now. Mm-hmm. And then we would do two individual lessons. So it's just you and the coach. Coach has coaching gear on. Kind of looks like you're going to fight a bear what
3: mm-hmm. you would wear.
2: Mm-hmm. And so here we're just kind of working on the technical aspects. And I feel like the great coaches are able to play with the intensity a little bit. So we would train Monday through Friday. Okay. And I feel like I really needed the recovery. That fencing super tired is not helping. It helps your opponent makes it very easy for them, but it doesn't help you at all. And if you're trying to push your teammates, it's not going to help them. Saturday and Sunday were off, yeah. A lot of those weekends were filled with reserve stuff, so they weren't always completely off.
1: What do you mean with reserve stuff?
2: I joined the Air Force Reserves in 2008.
1: Okay. After you graduated. Yeah. yeah.
2: I was active duty for three years, and then I joined the Air Force Reserves for a big portion of my fencing career. I was also traditional reservist working on a force support squadron
1: okay which is what you do currently it is
2: what i do currently Yeah. and
1: tell us what you do
2: i work for the 446 force support squadron i oversee force development which is all the education and training and then i also oversee services which is a food fitness and lodging
1: as a reservist
2: as a reservist yeah
1: so you graduated with degree and i'm just curious like did you oh, I...
2: behavioral science
1: oh interesting <laughs> yeah. okay behavioral scientists why
2: well, it was the only class I got an A in. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, this school is pretty difficult. Maybe I should do the thing that I seem to be okay at.
1: <laughs> okay. So did you use your degree in any way?
2: I don't think I used it in any formal way, but I like thinking about how the mind works, how people yeah. think about things, mm-hmm. and that I feel it gives you a frame to help solve problems. And I feel like I've continued to read different books that have come out.
3: Okay.
1: I would like to explore the topic of pressure and the reason that I mentioned that you were quite an accomplished elite level athlete by the age of 22. I'm wondering, what is it like to experience that kind of success? Because with success comes a lot of pressure related to expectations, right? From yourself, from other people, and the actual competition, the pressure of competition. What was it like for you to manage that pressure mentally? at such a young age and has that evolved over time and have you gotten better with being able to manage pressure.
2: Yeah, so I think one thing was kind of unique for me in high school when I was starting fencing is that my coach was at one club and I did my bouting practice at a different club. So my coach didn't get to see me practice. And so I was essentially running my own practices and in fencing there's preliminary bouts that are five touches. Helps seed you into the competition. And then the elimination bouts are all 15 touches.
3: Okay,
1: you have to explain for us. What does that mean?
2: In the beginning, you'd be in a pool of six people. And you fence round robin. So you fence each person. And you fence to five touch bouts. That's about three minutes. And then they'll seed you into the tournament. So if you won all your bouts, you would be seeded very high. And then your first bout would be against someone who maybe only won two bouts. So... In theory, you should win that. Mm-hmm. And those elimination bouts are all in the fifteen touches. For my first two Olympic Games and the individual side, I showed up and I fenced super hard for nine minutes, then I went home. I was eliminated first round. So that's the single elimination. In high school, I you know, I have to fence at least seven fifteen touch bouts every night before I get to go home. Okay. I feel like when I got to competitions, I didn't feel the pressure as much. I enjoyed the tension that would happen, but I felt very comfortable because I I was like, oh, yeah, that's all I've been doing. Oh, yeah, this feels like this time like a couple weeks ago. It felt very familiar to me.
1: Because you made your practice so difficult?
2: I don't know if it's so difficult, but it was so close to competition. Familiar. And I always wanted to win. One thing that I think is important is that if the first time you fence a championship bout or run your championship race is the first time you feel that pressure, that's not going to go well. (laughs) Because you're not accustomed to it. So I think it's important to put that pressure on yourself, even in practice, of, I want to win. you got to put some emotional chips on the line. And if you don't win, if you're not a little frustrated, if you're not a little upset, then I don't know if you're emotionally invested in what's going on.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. I see. Would you translate it or generalize it in life? Not necessarily in any kind of athletic endeavor, but in life, professionally or personally?
2: Yeah. I think people know whether they're putting emotional chips in or not whether they really have a stake in the outcome of what's going to happen. it happens at work? You know, if you get a new project. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get it done. But instead of, no, no, like we're going to do it. And there's a risk that it's not going to go well. We're not going to finish on time. I really put in everything that I could. I think I see that. But part of that is knowing that you can do your best and still not win. Mm It's convincing. There's no 100% shot. There's no, if you do this, you're guaranteed to get a touch every time. You know, it might be a 90% shot. I think that's true in life, that we all try to do different things. And, you know, at some point, it's not 100%. You know, you don't always make every promotion. You don't always get all the things done you want it done. And failure, failure is part of that.
1: When you approximate that feeling of pressure or being under pressure, In practice to the competition, then it makes it easier during the competition. Is that what I'm hearing?
2: It does make it easier. It's not to say there weren't times that maybe my confidence faltered a little bit. We're fencing a team match for the gold medal at a World Cup. So, in fencing, there's also a team event where there's three people on each team and you hand off the score as a relay. And so, I was the anchor for the team.
1: And what does that mean?
2: I fenced the last bout. So, the team matches go to 45 touches. You know, maybe it's been low scoring you know they hand me the score and how it works out for me determines if we win or if we lose i've always felt a lot of responsibility not necessarily pressure but responsibility that hey my teammates did their best and gave me this thing as now it's my responsibility to take it to the finish line and in this one against russia i was leading by I don't know, 6 or 7 touches which in fencing is is a lot especially cuz we only had 14 seconds remaining i mean be like being up 20 points in basketball with like a minute, minute and a half remaining. a minute. It should be over, should be done. In your favor. Yeah, in your favor. And the other guy scored single light after single light.
1: What does that mean, single light?
2: Single, oh, so in fencing, in épée fencing, if I hit you before you hit me, it's my touch. But however, if we hit within 1 25th of a second, we both get a touch. So sometimes you're like, oh, I'm up by a bunch. I can just get a double touch. It'll be fine. Usually if you try to do it, <laughs> it does not work out in your favor. But I just remember I was so low after that. He tied it up and he won it overtime. I blew this huge lead. I let my team down. We were so close to this gold medal. And I, I wasn't sure what to do. And then I was really fortunate that our coach, Sebastian De Santos had a pretty collaborative atmosphere. I never felt like he was, oh, we're only going to do this. wasn't that structured. It was more like, hey guys, let's figure out what makes sense. So we started talking about, maybe we could do a drill around this. And so we developed this called attack and defend drill, which is <laughs> physically intense, but also mimics the pressure of that same situation. Mm-hmm. So we developed that drill, practiced it. You know, Not always comfortable to think about, oh yeah, we're doing this drill because I lost the match. <laughs> Everybody else watching. But we practiced it and that situation came up again. And I just remember the guy scored. And before I would have maybe freaked out. Oh, oh no, he's got my number. I was, oh, when we do some practice, we're normal. We're set for the course. I know what I want to do next. Okay, I just got a lead from the start. And then I was able to win. That for me was an amazing lesson.
1: Let me make sure that I understand Your coach developed a drill that was very similar to the situation in which you lost to a Russian fencer. Yeah. And it was a few seconds, maybe a few minutes, that you only had so many opportunities to, I guess, to win, to score. And you would practice it until you felt really comfortable.
2: Yeah. So we started to integrate it into training. And I felt because it was a collaborative effort. It was me and the coach, the other fencers. Everyone was oh, yeah let's figure out a way the person who comes before me in the team match Cody Mattern who's a retired army specialist he was always the person I would go to and we would have a discussion before the second to last match hey I need you to give me a lead or leave it where it's at I got this so for him there are times I was like hey I need you to score a bunch and so that drill worked both ways as both if you're down how to make the comeback and if you're up how to resist that person because as the score changes, it changes how people feel in the moment.
1: What do you mean by that?
2: So like if you get close to the end of a race, the last 30 seconds, the last 400 meters in the race feels very different than the middle 400 meters. Very. <laughs> and especially if you have someone you're racing with, whether in front of you, behind you, whether they passed you and now they're falling. But all of those things, I feel like change how you perceive that moment. And I think there's a lot of value in practicing those things. These external factors shouldn't affect your performance, but they creep in and they sort of provide a context for what's going on. And then it can be important, oh, this other person will probably respond like this. I need to be ready for that. Mm -hmm.
1: My coach always tells me I will perform how I'll practice. So if I slow down, if I have a workout, a run, and last two miles. Maybe I slowed down and he would always, you know, it's more important that you are slower in the beginning and then you drop the pace later on, right? And you keep the pace so you're faster at the latter part because you will perform how you train.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think just to be cognizant of how those things affect how you see what's going on mm-hmm. is important. They have an effect, in, at least in micro. I've seen them again and again. I do coaching. I coach modern pentathlon in the 2016 Olympic Games. When I was designing practices for them, we worked with time because as the clock comes down, it changes both what the other fence will do and how you want to respond as well.
1: How do you want to respond? So when you have 30 <laughs> seconds left or 400 meters left.
2: In the very end pieces, to both be aware of one, your intensity level. Fencing, I, I feel like there are times you can get flat. You're not moving. So suddenly you're like, man, like, why isn't any of this working? Oh, I'm not using my feet at all. mm mm-hmm. But also to anticipate. Oh, I know my opponent's coming, or maybe in a race, I know they have a strong kick. Mm-hmm. They're going to go now. Okay, how do I match that intensity within my physical bounds as well? I'm a pretty large fencer, and so I fence best when the touches last thirty seconds. So I, I'm very cognizant of. Oh, I need to really be active and set this up early. I can't be waiting around for these later and later, because then the Probability shift in my opponent's favor. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Interesting. I guess I've never really given too much thought on the time perception of how it changes the effort, the output.
2: Yeah. So I think all those little variables you can use time, score, maybe strength of the opponent, use those to shape a practice and create a situation, whether it's you're down three touches with a minute to go, Mm -hmm. or you're fencing someone very strong they're going to be pushing you, so maybe you're limiting the space on the strip. You can do all these things to get comfortable. A lot of times, fencers are really pushing to get stuck at the back because if you run off the back, you lose a touch. Kind of like sumo wrestling, if you go out the side, you lose. Wrestling, I think, is the same way. So you're like, all right, let's fence five or 15 touches at the back of the strip because sometimes people are like, if I go back, I'm going to lose. So then they stop doing the things that make them great. I think part of being comfortable is being able to Remind yourself of, oh, this is how I perform the best. Let's make sure I'm doing those things.
1: Mm-hmm. And that leads me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you. What's your mental game? What's your mental preparation for a high-level performance?
2: This took me a long time to kind of to improve it over time. I mean, I will tell you one of the most difficult six-hour periods was between I qualified. I won my bout to fence for a medal. At the Olympic Games. And there was a six hour break between that bout and when I was gonna fence again. And unfortunately, I had not practiced that long a break. Normal training kind of fit into like a normal schedule. It's difficult to be like, okay, we're gonna fence at eight, and then we'll fence again at two this afternoon. It's tough to coordinate that. And that's not something I had practiced. So I found that incredibly difficult to super focus, super pumped, and then be able to come down, try to relax and then try to get ramped back up.
1: Did you know that you are going to have this break?
2: I didn't, no. I mean, uh, at that point, I'd never won an individual bout at the Olympic Games. I tried twice, didn't happen. And so in 2012, I won that first bout. And as soon as I won that bout, this huge weight just lifted off my chest. And then the next two bouts, I was so in the zone. I felt like I could do whatever I wanted you know, it was an amazing feeling, hi. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think I had looked that far down the pipeline. My only focus was how do I win the first bout? And then I'll, I'll deal with whatever else later.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: In a normal bout, it's important to, after a performance, if I know there's another performance coming, it's to really relax. And depending on the timing, I'd have like a set routine, making sure I'm drinking enough liquid, I'm eating enough. I use the same hydrolite, the mojo bars, I think just because they taste really good. (laughs) I just had this little pattern. I'd always sit down, not be wandering around, definitely talking with other people. I think it would be difficult to do something for 20 years if you didn't enjoy the people you did it with. Sure. So I was really fortunate that I had a lot of individual success, but my teammates, my wife were all fun to hang out with all love fencing and it made a much more enjoyable experience Mm -hmm.
1: you said you weren't used to that long break and as you mentioned from the very beginning what you're really good at is practicing a routine and performing well a routine that you've practiced now something that you haven't
2: yeah and we had done a little bit one of the things that our coach from 2009 to 2012 did was better prepare us for world championships that by the time 2009 i had been to eight or nine world championships. For some reason, we'd never trained specifically for the tournament. We'd go, we'd do some stuff, but it was never, hey, how do we really prepare ourselves? So I feel like that coach really introduced that championship preparation, because it's one thing to go to just a regular tournament, the stakes are a little bit lower, but at a championship or Olympics, there's more going on, both just around, and then everyone's like, this is the one I want to do really well at. Mm -hmm. So I think he did a good job preparing us. We went to a separate place really it was very intense, but also well managed with breaks because you need that intensity and then you need to be off that intensity. You can't maintain that for a long period of time.
1: Sure. And during a moment like that championship where you had to take that long break that you weren't prepared for, or maybe other moments, did you use any kind of self-talk?
2: I didn't do a lot of self-talk. I think I'm fortunate that my brain doesn't run too wild. It's not so active. I really feel fencing in my body, which has pluses and minuses. Lots of international travel and not always a ton of rest. So I got very comfortable in the feeling of, oh, my body feels terrible. Guess what? It always feels terrible. You still have to perform. How do I work with what I got here today? Mm-hmm. I remember one time I showed up and my wife would watch me warm up and she was like, ooh, it's going to be a very short day. <laughs> she's in the warm-up bout. I was getting wrecked. She was like, well, you know, that's good. I mean, we're done. We'll be done early. We can go see the city. It should be awesome.
1: By the way, his <laughs> wife is in the studio with us and she's smiling.
2: <laughs> and that day I went on to win a World Cup, which I'd never seen another American male fencer do. You're not always going to feel great, but how you feel at the beginning of the day is not necessarily how you're going to feel at the end of the day.
1: I like that. That's a good metaphor for, for overall, right? For yeah. well being in general.
2: Yeah. Well, I only got 10% to work with today. Like, let's get all 10% of it out.
1: Yeah. 100% of the 10%, right? Yeah. Okay. For events like this and when you succeed, what does that feel like for you? When you have low expectations, maybe other have low expectations of yourself, but you are able to do so well.
2: I always felt that I wasn't the best fencer, but I could be the best fencer over nine minutes. Sometimes in fencing, you shouldn't be the best fencer for 15 seconds. Just based on the score. You know, hold the score low and I'm gonna gamble it here on this last touch.
1: I wanted to ask you a question about how success is often viewed. I've heard somewhere a comparison of success is like the tip of the iceberg. That oftentimes what others around us see is the tip of the iceberg, and that's success. But what's underneath that success is hours and weeks and years and years of practice and effort and due diligence that others do not see. Oftentimes, maybe you hear, you're just so lucky. You're just so good at this. I'm sure you've heard this said to you multiple times. What's your thought on that?
2: Yeah. Also, sometimes I have a very awkward kind of unique style. So a lot of the foreign coaches are like, he's just not that good. I was like, yeah, I've just been lucky for 20 years. (laughs) I appreciate that. But to me, I defined success in fencing not by the individual tournament, but how did I do in my bouts? Did I put in the effort? Did I keep my feet the way they were supposed to be? These process-oriented things. I had this one fencer that I had such a hard time with, Milanoli.
1: Somebody you, you coached there?
2: No, it's someone I was fencing, one of my opponents. My opponents. And just couldn't beat him. I mean, he was an amazing Italian fencer, been a bunch of Olympic teams, world champion, but I couldn't do it. And it wasn't a failure that I lost. I'm doing what I need to do. And then the last time we fenced, my teammate, who was also coaching me, we didn't always have a coach. And so sometimes we self-coached. But my friend and teammate Cody was like, hey, like this guy fences super crazy. So you got to match that. That's not a normal thing. Normally a coach would be like, no, no, like we're going to look for this very specific thing or we're going to do this. He's like, no, you got to go like full crazy on this guy. I was like, "All all the other things, when I've been, Thought I was fencing well, like it wasn't going great. I'll try this, and sure enough, going crazy worked. I was able to tie it up, take a little lead. And then in the second break, Cody came back out, and he's like, okay, now that you're up, he has to fence you normal, and now you can go back to your game, how you normally fence, and then it'll be fine. And sure enough, in those last five touches, I could just fence like I normally fenced, super good quality. I was able to win. I was like, oh, that was one that was genius on his part. And sometimes you got to change some things to make it work.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I do want to come back to the question about the idea that you have to put practice in, right? So for nine minutes or nine and a half minutes or whatever that is, maybe 30 seconds of intense performance, you have to put in deliberate practice (laughs) in a lot of it, right?
2: Yeah. So I like the word deliberate practice. I've seen a lot of people put in lots of practice, but they don't go anywhere. So I think it's important to be very deliberate about what you're practicing. Mm -hmm. And we were fortunate in that we got to run our own practices a large percentage of the time, just kind of the way the coaching setup was. Sometimes we didn't have a coach. So if you're going to run your own practice, you have full control. You get to decide how intense do I want this to be, what do I want to work on, what do I want to improve. And I was fortunate to have teammates that were willing to push me. We pushed each other. So one, I think it has to be deliberate practice. Yeah, we're practicing to get better at this either specific thing or, we like to practice fifteen touch bouts because that's how you're going to win world championships. But all that builds up in order to have the success. You know, fencing comes down to one touch, and overtime might take twenty seconds. You have hours and hours just for that one moment.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I think it's important for longevity is to define success as doing your best and doing the things you plan to do. Mm-hmm. Did I move well? that I keep my tip in the good place? that I take high percentage actions, that I lead the footwork. Those are all things you can control. There are plenty of bouts where I feel like I did all of those things and the other person was just better that day or Mm -hmm. the percentages broke a little bit in their way. But that's not a failure. I had success and I can repeat that success. Mm
1: -hmm. If you were to generalize those skills or what you just described, this kind of idea of deliberate practice for performance, if you were to generalize that idea Onto just a regular airman trying to have a successful career, or a good day, or a good week, or a good assignment. How would you translate that?
2: If you're practicing for something like maybe maybe it's the PT test, even for me now, I track all my PT workouts and the two three months leading up to the PT test. So nothing is a surprise on competition day. In my body, it feels like a competition on PT day. It shouldn't probably, but. I get the same feeling as if I was going to compete for fencing. But I can look back at the log. Yep. We did the the broken mile and a half. We did the time trial runs. We did all the push-ups. All right. Now I just need to know that I'm going to put in the effort today. Like I put in the work and now I know if I just put in the effort on the day of, it's going to be fine.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: For some reason it didn't go well. If you went to the commander and you're like, hey, <laughs> this is what I did to prepare, then you could have an honest discussion of, well, you didn't put enough running miles in. Well, you're only doing push-ups twice a week. That's not enough volume. You can make those corrections, so then you'll be successful the next time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's just a small example of practicing for your PT test, right? Yeah. There should be no surprise. There should be never a surprise, <laughs> <No>. right? <laughs> for your PT <laughs> test. You shouldn't expect to run 734 mile and a half <laughs> if you didn't run for the entire year. Yeah. What about just thinking about an assignment or, again... Well-being in general, like what would it look like to practice being resilient? What would it look like to practice have a good assignment somewhere?
2: So, define success for yourself is maybe you're having a tough time, right? I think we all have moments where it's a little darker mm-hmm. than the sun. Did I get out of bed? Did I go to the gym this week? Mm-hmm. Did I cook quality meals? And maybe you are not going to hit all of those things every day. You know, I'm doing the best with what I got. I'm hitting most of them. I mean. I feel like you can win about if you're not fencing at 100%, but if you're doing you know, 85% of the things, then you'll normally be successful. And I think that's the same as true in life. You're not going to be perfect every day, but if you're working towards all of those processes that make you do your best, then I think you're going to see great results.
1: Do you have a routine or habit that you have to practice every day now in order to stay successful? Any kind of a daily habit, routine, ritual, something like making your bed or whatever, doing 100 push-ups every day, or whatever. Or meditation or walking or petting your cat. I don't know. Yeah, I pet my cat.
2: Yeah, I pet my cat a lot too. He's real needy. I don't know that I have a daily routine. The thing that I try to be mindful of, of there are times for work and immense effort. And then there's also times to be away from that. And it's important to really separate those two things. Mm -hmm. I love hiking. I love being outside. I do this weightlifting class that I am terrible at. (laughs) But I see those things as really separate from the intensity of work. I run a a home business as well. Having that separation, I think a lot of times, just caught on a treadmill of always kind of in the work mode and never breaking out, having,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. having different stuff. And part of that for me, I enjoy reading a great deal. I think reading one of the many benefits is provide you a different perspective sometimes. Oh, I could look at that problem differently.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And it helps you get out of your head, right? And yeah. be less self absorbed. Any recommendations for Bunch. reading? What gives you a kind of a, like, oh, wow, this is a book that I would recommend to everybody?
2: I just finished Atul Gawande's The Checklist Manifesto, which I know sounds super exciting. <laughs> I think two things are important. One, I didn't realize the history of the checklist in the Air Force, which is fascinating, that as planes became more complex, it became very dangerous not to have a checklist because they wanted to make sure the flight crews got off the ground and Mm -hmm. could land safely, and checklists helped make that happen. And so the surgeon implemented the same checklist and surgery. A lot of things that came up there, like, I'm a surgeon, I'm so good, I don't need a checklist, but surgeons were still making errors. And so he was able to introduce this checklist and reduce death rates, complications by double-digit percentages, in some cases up to 50% across hospitals in India, in the U.S., in Europe, so kind of working everywhere. For my own reserve job, I developed a checklist just to make sure I wasn't missing some of the little things. I have to update that slide. I have to do this thing. To try to keep it all in your head all of the time is too much. But if you have the check, you're like, oh, yeah, I need to do. That. Okay, great. Done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to let the, the little stuff slip if it isn't written down.
1: Mm-hmm. Awesome. And that's just recent.
2: I think it came out a little while ago, but it's new to me.
1: Okay. Yeah. I am not familiar, but I, I do love checklists. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you feel unfocused or out of balance? Um, checklists.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, at work, go back to the checklist. See, so you're like, oh, am I missing it? But for sports, we developed a reset strategy. And so sometimes, especially when I'm fencing team, maybe a couple touches didn't go the right way or something. Either coach would yell it out or I would do it myself. I'd walk to the end of the strip, push the time a little bit, because you're supposed to come back on guard within a couple of seconds. You can push the time a little bit. And then I would tap my mask, just my finger, three times. Let's reset. Let's lead. Lead the footwork. Sit down. Let's move. And usually, that was enough. It wasn't a cure-all. There are some days when, I mean, you just can't get your tip on, but I feel like that it usually put me in a better place. I had one experience. I was sensing my teammate Cody for a national championship, and I was down five touches, which this guy I train with every day, he is incredibly good. The chances of me making that back up are just vanishingly small. And I remember in my head, I'm actually going to give up. I'm going to let go. And I'm going to fence a new bout. Fence a new bout. I just happen to be starting down 5 five Let's see how good I can fence. Sometimes I think things get really intense and you feel like you're, maybe you're falling behind. You start sort of chasing after this thing and you're all locked up. Instead of saying, let's reset. And sometimes that takes giving up for a moment. All right. Let it go. All right. Now, how do I set up and get back into this and fence a good bout or do your job from here on out?
1: Mm-hmm. Dr. Aaron Moffitt talks about it in one of my interviews, my recent episodes. I asked him about the strategies of kind of mental game during the competition. So he talks about this reset. He says, identify this unhelpful thought pattern, quickly identify it, and then create something that helps you stop that. And so he uses examples from his athletes. Somebody used Rewind. So I think it's very similar. Or sometimes he has his teams pick up maybe like a grass and throw it to the ground as a way to reset. Or this one woman who used elephants because elephants are big and I guess they, you know, they can erase everything that happened before.
2: I think those are all great reset strategies. I think it's important to have something tactical. I think sometimes that breaks through. So in your head. Yeah, tactile. Tactile. Uh So tapping your chest. Mm -hmm. I feel like the face, there's so many sensors in your face. A little tap. Wake you up. I had one teammate who would ask me to slap him, which uh, <laughs> it was made me very nervous because <laughs> he was really strong. <laughs> if you do it too hard, I feel like he's going to come after you. If you don't do it hard enough, then he's not <laughs> awake enough. <laughs> but I think the second component of that is to have the thing that you want to do. So I would say reset. Maybe I wasn't moving before. So, like, so refocus. Hey, refocus and be like, I want to move more.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I remember in our world championships, we're fencing gold medal. My goal wasn't to win because I, I had been in situations where, you know, sometimes you see the goal. It's right there. And in your mind, you already have it. You are wearing the gold medal. You got the promotion. And then usually that's when people stumble. Mm. And I have done that many times. <laughs> but my goal for that, I'm going to move the entire time. And I move so well. And at the end of this, I have a heart attack okay, that probably means I moved enough. So sort of having that process goal and that thing that this is what I need to be doing, I feel like that was really helpful for me.
1: You know, and I'm thinking about it for airmen who are struggling maybe with just, you know, Monday through Friday because they are dealing with a supervision that doesn't match their style or because they don't like the mission or because they're bored because they lost the passion for what they're doing. Rather than focusing on, when is the assignment going to be over? When is my supervision going to change? To focus on things like, you call it the process goal. Yeah. I'm going to do my absolutely best and I'm going to move.
2: Yeah, I'm going to have an internal locus of control. Mm-hmm. And like I'm, I'm what am do, I in charge of? Yeah, what am I in charge of?
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm
2: going to try to do that as well as I can. And it doesn't mean you will be successful every day. Sure. Don't let a single day ruin a whole week.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Definitely don't let a single day ruin a whole year.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Focus on things I can control. And I feel like things usually work out after that.
1: You have experienced competition at the highest elitist level and have witnessed your teammates and trainees, because I know you coach, succeed and fail. What do you think distinguishes those who do really well and those who
2: fail? At the Olympic Trans Center, we had a core set of athletes, myself, Cody Mattern, Jimmy Moody, Jason Pryor. They're always there, very successful. And we had other athletes that would come in and train with us, sometimes for extended periods of time. I feel like the ones that never improved were the ones who wouldn't change. I don't think you should have to reinvent yourself, but you have to be willing to take feedback and then implement that and try it. So I think sometimes people get stuck in a loop. This is what I do. Maybe I have a little bit of success at it. And then they're like, oh, it didn't work this time. Instead of trying something new and getting out of that loop, which is scary, right? You're like, I try something new. It may not work. I knew for me, I really integrated strength conditioning training. And it took six months to integrate. I was not fencing very well for the first six months after doing serious strength conditioning work. And that was pretty frustrating. But at the end of the six months, it wasn't just a little bit of improvement. It was a whole level of improvement. But you have to make those changes to continue to evolve.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that's true inside sports and outside sports. And then for those who are the most successful, I just saw deliberateness from those people. What they were doing when they're practicing, they're deliberate about the bouts they were fencing, the strength and conditioning they were doing, where they were living, how they were eating. Do I think they were perfect every day of every moment? No. But there was a deliberateness to them that I didn't see in other people who were like, oh, like I'm just here, I'm doing the things. All the people who I've seen do really well had that little extra focus and were just deliberate about what they were doing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I like that That the first is people who don't do well and people who are unwilling to be adaptable to change and trying new things. It's sort of this idea maybe of fear of change. Yeah. Trying something new. Why would I do this? This is what I've done my entire life. Well, it's not helping you, I know, but this is what I do. Yeah. And kind of get stuck in that mode.
2: Because if you don't try something new, It will not change.
1: (laughs) Do you have any recommendations for those airmen who are struggling with difficult times? And I really like that you didn't talk about necessarily, like you didn't preach about how to live your life. You only spoke about your sport and what you do, what you did as an athlete. But I can see so many parallels between training and performing and just living your life well. What can you recommend to those airmen struggling with tough times right now, or those airmen who are not struggling but are trying to do better and trying to perform better and trying to succeed?
2: A couple things. One, if things feel real bad, seek out your chaplain or your MFLAC. I use that on my deployment and I feel like it made a huge difference. I underappreciated chaplains for a long time and their confidentiality is amazing. So, if you're having a really tough time, please seek out some of those professional resources. I think the second part is if you're kind of like, ah, like things aren't, like nothing's happening. I'm going through this. So I think, sit down. How could I do things a little bit better? Make a rough plan. And I'm not a big advocate of, oh, I want to be a four-star general or I want to win the Olympic Games. Instead of like, how can I be the best at what I'm doing right now? Mm-hmm. How can I take Even small steps to get there. It took me 20 years to develop that full week program in a way that I could handle it and that I got the most out of it. That wasn't just day two of fencing, that was day 6,642. And then the third part is to learn to take a break, put the effort in, have some emotional investment, and then also have downtimes, whether it's getting outside, social experiences where you can be who you are. I think it's important to have that contrast. And for me, I traveled the world for 20 years. And whether I won or lost, it was valuable to me because the people I got to spend that time with were amazing. And I got to see parts of the world I wouldn't have gotten to on my own. I took my fencing seriously. And the time that I didn't have to fence or train, I was able to go out and I got to see the Tower in Paris. I got to go to Tokyo, all these places that were you know, amazing opportunities.
1: I love that message. Don't cut corners. If you're doing something, focus on doing that thing really well. Don't do 99%, 98%, do 100% whatever you're doing at this moment. And then when you're done, then go play hard, right? So kind of this idea of work hard, play hard. Is there anything at all that you wish to tell us that is important?
2: Well, I would encourage anyone, if they're interested in fencing, there are fencing clubs in almost every major city, and it's a fun sport from nine years old to 99. So it's something you can do your whole life, which is awesome. And I still enjoy where I live now. I can go to the club, and I enjoy the competitive atmosphere, and I enjoy also going out with everyone afterwards.
1: Do people know you when you go to a club and like, <laughs> like, oh yeah, my mean... God, this guy is like a
3: celebrity?
2: <laughs> uh, people knew who I am. I mean, I fenced for a very long time. And the fencing community is you know, about thirty, forty thousand 40,000 people. So it's not so big, which is fun. But also I know when I show up, everyone's like, I want a piece of him. The young guys coming up, they want to be able to say they beat me. I don't get easy bouts. <laughs> everyone is trying to win <laughs> as hard as they can, which I really appreciate. and I think it's super deliberate, but it's also very frustrating sometimes. Yeah, it's probably tiring. Yeah. <laughs> for sure.
1: Awesome. This was Seth Kelsey, who is a world renowned athlete and a fencer. Thank you so much for this interview.
0: This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully, you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airman's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice, and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners, and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is Anavidotova.mil at mail. It's anna.v.fedotova.mail
3: at mail.